I'm a uh, five senses eater. Any other five senses eaters here? No one's going to raise their hand. Let me define what I mean. If I'm going to voluntarily place something in my mouth, it is going to be appealing to every one of my five senses. Needs to look good, taste good, feel good, smell good, and sound good. And now, anyone else a five senses eater? We got a couple? Yeah, there's a couple of us out here, right? Now, some of you out there who aren't five senses eaters, you're saying, sound good? Come on. How does that offend? How does anything you put in your mouth offend your sense of sound? Well, if that's the case, you have obviously never worked at a sub shop and had to unload a five-gallon bucket of mayonnaise into little tubs because that sound has ever cured me of ever putting mayonnaise on anything ever again. It must not offend any of my sounds, which is probably why for a long time I never ate guacamole. Uh, Never tried it, but I never ate it. Because I looked at it and said, no, that doesn't look like something I'm going to eat. Till a couple years ago, we were at a Mexican restaurant here in town. And Wendy ordered uh, t- tableside guacamole. And I said, that's fine, you can have that, and I'll order something else. And the guy comes to the table, and he has his little cart there. And he starts, you know, gets out his little bowl and he starts getting out the ingredients and he puts in some scoops of cilantro and I'm watching him and I go, I like cilantro. He puts in a little salt in there and I, I like salt. And then he says, you want it spicy? And she says, yeah, he puts in some jalapenos. I'm like, yes, please, I like jalapenos. Mashes that all up for a little bit, then takes out this thing I've never eaten before. Apparently it's called an avocado. And uh, he takes this thing out, does the coolest thing I've ever seen with a knife, just goes around it, pulls it apart, pulls that thing I've learned is now called a stone out of the middle, and uh, scoops it out, puts it in there, adds some tomatoes, a little more salt, salt, folds it in there, and I'm like, you know what? That doesn't look too bad now that I see what's in it. I'm like, other than that avocado thing, everything else looks pretty good. So I take a chip try a little bit of that, and Wendy has never had her own bowl of guacamole anymore (laughs) since then. And yesterday, I was like, you know what? I want some guacamole. So I went all in on this. We got a mocajete in the house. I'm like, I'm going to make it. We're going to make it at home now. And my daughter is the guacamole maker. She makes it really good. She doesn't need the recipe or anything. But yesterday, she's at youth convention with the youth, and I wanted some, and I had bought some avocados that I had set apart for this particular purpose. And I had them on the counter, and I'm like, I'm going to make some guacamole. Bella's not here. I'll make it myself. Start chopping up the stuff. I put it in, get the cilantro in there, the salt, start mashing it up. Everything looks great. Grab one of those avocados. And uh, here's the hard thing about an avocado. You never quite know when it's right to eat. I mean, I know I've learned everyone has their system because I see people in the grocery store. And they're touching them and they're feeling them and they're smelling them and they're looking at the color. And there's even little charts in the grocery store to tell you how to do it. And I'm like, well, I bought these. I set them apart just for that purpose. So I grab one, cut it open, and I look at it and I'm like, and it's this kind of gray and brown and it's definitely offending my sense of sight. And I ask Wendy, I'm like, does this look okay? And she's like, I don't know, just cut the brown parts out. I'm like, no, I don't. (laughs) 
You don't know. We've been married 23 years. You think I'm cutting the brown parts out and eating the rest. That's not happening. Grab another avocado. Cut that open. That one looks better. Cut that in. Put that in there. Make the guacamole and enjoy the nice bowl of guacamole. Here's why I tell you that story. Because sometimes you get things that you set apart for a particular purpose, but then you get set aside and never end up fulfilling that purpose, like my avocado. And with avocados, it's because it spoils. With other things, it's because of other reasons. Yesterday, we were going to visit some friends who had a surgery, and Wendy had bought some flowers to bring over, and we had set them apart for that particular purpose, to bring them over to, uh, to this young lady who had just had a surgery. And we get half, you know, we're out the door, we're on our way there, and we said, oh, we forgot the flowers. They're still on the kitchen counter. And we couldn't go back. So these flowers that were set apart for that purpose have now been set aside and never actually fulfilled their purpose. And that happens with things in our lives sometimes. Christmas presents, right? Maybe you got a Christmas present that you meant to give to somebody. It was set apart for that particular person. And now it's March. And you're thinking it might be a little late to give that to him. I mean, you give it to him now, it's kind of like, hey, I thought of you. But not that much. (laughs) It was set apart for that purpose, but then gets set aside and never fulfills its purpose. And here's the thing. When you're a Christian and you follow Jesus, you come to follow Jesus, you have a purpose that's given to you by God. You have been called by God, not just to go to heaven one day and be with him, not just to have life eternal, but you have been called and given a mission and a purpose in this life. And everyone has their individual place where God has you. You're in a family, you're in a school, you're in a work situation, you're in a neighborhood, you're in a place where God has you and he's got work for you to do. He's got a purpose for you. He's got a reason that he has you there. He set you apart. In fact, the Bible tells us that we're supposed to be holy people when we follow Jesus. Consecrated is a word it uses. The word consecrated and holy literally means set apart for the purposes of God. But here's the reality. God has a purpose for your life. But sometimes we miss it. Andy Stanley, Pastor Andy Stanley said when he was a kid, every night when he'd go to bed, his father, Dr. Charles Stanley would say this to him, Andy, God has a plan for your life. Don't miss it. Don't miss it. How do you miss it? Here's the reality. God has a ministry for each and every one who comes to follow Jesus. He has a purpose for you. You may look and you say, well, I don't preach. I don't play music. No, 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 no. You come to Jesus, God has a purpose for you right where you are. He has something for you to do. He's got unique people in your life that are not in my life. Because he has you there to minister to. He's got a ministry for you. And nobody can take that ministry away from you. But you can give it away. But you can give it away of your own accord. He has a purpose for you. And the danger is that sometimes we can miss the purpose God has for us. It can be that God has set you apart. But if you're not careful, his purpose gets set aside in your life. And I want us this morning to look at a person in the book of Judges that we come to who was clearly set apart for the purposes of God. But as we go to the end of his life, ends up set aside 
by God. And how does that happen? Why does that happen? And really, more importantly, for those of us that follow Jesus, how do we avoid it? We're going to meet a man named Samson, who if his story, I think, went the way that it should have from the beginning, would be a complete hero that we celebrate. But the way it ended up going ends up being a cautionary tale for us as we look at it. Samson was set apart for the purposes of God. It'd be hard to argue against that. Two things, I think, point to the fact that he was set apart. One, his potential. His potential. Samuel had so... Samuel, Samson. Did I say Samuel the whole time? All right, thank you. Samson had so much potential that he was spoken about before he was even born. So his story is in Judges chapter 13, 14, 15, and 16. And you say four chapters. Yep, he's the longest there is of anyone in the book of Judges. The most time is spent on Samson. That alone tells you something pretty important going on here. 13, 14, 15, and 16. If you don't have a Bible, you can grab one out of your chair racks uh, there, and we're on page 213, I think, in your chair rack Bible. And if you don't own a Bible, uh, you, don't, you go home and there's not actually one on your shelf at home, it's not that you forgot to bring it, then um, please take that Bible as our gift to you. Uh, we want everyone to have a copy of God's Word, and you can have that, put your name in it, bring it home, and bring it back with you each week. Um, I'm not going to read the entire story of Samson because it's in chapters 13, 14, 15, and 16 of Judges. Uh, I would finish reading, you would go home, and I'd like to say a couple things about it at least. So I'm going to tell you the story and read some scriptures along the way. Um, But here's one reason you know that Samson was set apart by God. It's because his story starts out like this in chapter 13, verse 3. And the angel of the Lord appeared to the woman. This is Samson's mom. And the, and the angel of the Lord appeared to the woman and said to her, Behold, you are barren and have not borne children, but you shall conceive and bear a son. Therefore, be careful and drink no wine or strong drink and eat nothing unclean. For behold, you shall conceive and bear a son. No razor shall come upon his head For the child shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb, and he shall begin to save Israel from the hand of the Philistines. There's two things that are really significant about the start of Samson's life. One is he has a birth narrative. Okay, maybe, let me just explain that for a second. Birth narratives are always important in any form of literature. You've probably been introduced to them if you've read literature, whatever. Some people have birth narratives. In the scriptures, when you see a birth narrative, when you see someone is going to be born, a messenger tells about it, it means someone important is coming on the scene. It's only done a few times in scripture. Abraham and Sarah are told about the birth of Isaac. That's pretty important. God's beginning his people. God's beginning his, his nation. Uh, Elizabeth and Zechariah told about the birth of John the Baptist that's coming. And of course, the most famous one, Mary and Joseph, are told by angels about the coming of Jesus and how they'll be used to bring God's son into the world. And also, Samson has a birth narrative that we just read. So when we see that, it definitely keys us in. Someone important's coming. Something important's coming. And so... Huge potential here. But the other thing is this Nazarite vow. 
sounds strange to your ears, and maybe uh, you haven't heard of that, but here's a Nazarite. A Nazarite vow was a temporary vow that somebody would take when they really needed to hear from God. They needed to get something where they needed to get close to God. They needed to get with God. They needed an answer. They, they, one of the things they would do is take a temporary Nazarite vow. It's talked about in Numbers chapter 6, if you want to read about it and have it explained a little bit more. But they take a temporary vow in their life, and they I God, I need to hear from you. It's, it's, it's you know, unavoidable. It's impossible for me to go on without hearing from you. So I take this vow. Usually consisted of three things. Basically, it consisted of living a holy life permanently during this time of the vow. Three things. One, don't touch anything unclean. That was the first thing. No, don't touch any dead bodies. Touching a dead body wasn't a sin, but it made people unclean, and they couldn't go into the temple and into God's presence. So when you took a Nazarite vow, it was don't touch anything unclean. And it's so serious that in Numbers chapter 6, it says even if your mom and dad dies, if you are in your Nazarite vow, don't go in near their dead body. There's a serious thing. Don't make this commitment lightly. There's a serious commitment. Second part was don't drink any fermented drink. No alcohol. Stay pure of that. Stay clean of that. Keep your body clean of that the entire time of the vow. Third thing was don't cut your hair. Let your hair grow, and that'll be a sign to people around you that you are living out this vow and that you are seeking God for something in your life. It was temporary. Eventually, you could go to funerals again. Eventually, you drank a glass of wine. Eventually, you cut your hair. It was temporary, except for Samson. What Samson's mom is told before he's born is he will be a Nazarite from the womb. She's told, don't drink. You don't drink any fermented drink. Not, not just when he's born, you tell him this. You don't, from now on, you don't drink because he's in your womb and he's getting nourishment from you. You don't do it. And from the womb and for his entire life, he will live out a Nazarite vow. I mean, that, so that tells you right from the beginning, he is set apart for the purposes of God. Something important is going on here. And you have to think that throughout his whole life, his mom would continue to tell him, his dad would continue to tell him, right? He would tell him what, what's, that he's set apart in his life. Mom, can I cut my hair? All the other boys are cutting their hair. No, Samson. We've been over this. Remember, the messenger came, the angel came before you were born. We made this, you are set apart for God, Samson. Mom, we're at the wedding. Can I have a glass of wine? Everyone else is, no, Samson. Remember the vow? Remember the angel? You've been set apart. You can't do this. Throughout his life, told again and again and again. Huge potential. But not just that. Amazing power. Strength. And, and I don't know how to describe it except to say the strongest man that's ever lived, that you can ever think of. And you say, I don't believe it. Let me just tell you a couple. And I don't know what he looked like. I'd love to, there's a couple things in this story I really want, I wish at least we had visuals on. I don't know what Samson looked like. I mean, maybe he was completely jacked. And like you, he walked around and you'd be like, yeah, strongest man that ever lived. Maybe, maybe he walked around like, I am Samson. I don't know, he might have. But he could have just been kind of an ordinary looking guy that God gave supernatural strength to at the right time, just the same way, you know, like the normal guy that lifts the car off the baby when, when you know, their child's under it in that supernatural, you know, kind of moment. He could have been just a fairly ordinary looking, we're not told, 
but he was the strongest man that ever lived. I'm not talking about stronger than most. I'm talking about, you know, I'm not talking just winning American Ninja Warrior. Like, they'd have to create a whole new show. He wouldn't even fit any of it. For example, once he was traveling along a path, and uh, he hears this roar. He says this in the scriptures, Judges chapter 14. Then Samson went down with his father and mother to Timnah. And they came to the vineyards of Timnah, and behold, a young lion came toward them roaring. You know why a lion roars? Paralyze its prey. Startle you. You're stuck in your tracks just for that split second where he's going to pounce on you. Then the spirit of the Lord rushed upon him. And although he had nothing in his hand, he tore the lion in pieces. Here's one of my favorite lines in the whole story. As one tears a young goat. I love that line. It's like, as one does, you know, he takes a lion and tears it like you would a young goat. But he did not tell his father or his mother what he had done. Takes a lion, a live animal that's attacking him. No weapon. Tears it in two. That's pretty strong. Later in his life, he, you don't think that's wrong. Later in his wife, life, he goes on and he faces some insurmountable odds. He is, um, the Philistines are attacking his people. And the Philistines know that Samson is strong. He's caused some trouble for them in the past. And they say, look, you give us Samson, we won't bother you anymore. The Israelites, they were really beaten down at this time. In fact, they had kind of given up. And so they went to Samson. They're like, look, we don't want to do it, but it's you or us. So we got to give you to him. And Samson, he's not worried about it. He says, look, are you going to hurt me? He said, no, no, we're not going to hurt you. We'll just... Give you to them. Here's what happens. They said to him, no, we will only bind you and give you into their hands. We will surely not kill you. So they bound him with two new ropes, like heavy ropes, not twine, right? These are like, think like on a ship, ropes, like heavy ropes around his arms and brought him up from the rock. When he came to Lehi, the Philistines came shouting to meet him. Of course they did. They got their prize They're running towards him because whoever kills him certainly gets a reward. Then the spirit of the ward rushed upon him and the ropes that were on his arms became as flax that has caught fire and his bonds melted off his hands and he found a fresh jawbone of a donkey and put out his hand and took it and with it he struck a thousand men. And you say that's unbelievable and I say that is the strongest man that ever lived. Takes down a thousand men. I don't know what he's doing. He's up, he's down. I don't know what he's doing. But takes them out with a jawbone of a donkey because God had put his spirit on him and given him the supernatural strength. Still want more evidence. Let me give you one more. It's in the city of Gaza. He's in the city of Gaza and it's a Philistine city. And the people of Gaza realize they've got Samson there. And they say, We got him. He's in our city. It's a walled city. All we got to do is close the gates. If we close the gates, there's no in, there's no out. He can't get reinforcements. He can't leave. He's a rat in a trap. He may kill some of us. He can't kill all of us. He's, we got him. So they close the gates of the city. Samson 
about midnight, goes to leave. It says, Samson, wait till midnight. And at midnight, he arose and did this, took hold of the doors of the gate of the city and the two posts and pulled them up, bar and all, and put them on his shoulders and carried them to the top of the hill that is in front of Hebron. Now, if you did that, just with a 36-inch wide door in your house, I would be impressed. We are talking doors that are two stories high, that are thick, that are held together with thick so chariots can run across and held together with bronze bars and have posts that are driven deep into the ground. And I would, this is the one I'd love to, if there's a DVR in heaven, I want to see this one. Because I, I want to know what it was like when he walked up to it. Because I've got to think he wanted somebody to see this. Like, I know it's midnight, but he's putting on a show. And he's, you know, I got to think he's walking up to these gates, making a little bit of noise so people see him. People are peeking around. No one's coming out because it's Samson. You know, he looks back over one shoulder, back over, like they watch him. Goes and grabs the bars, bronze bar of this gate, lifts him out of the ground. Could have just dropped him right there and walked out and be like, drop the mic, I'm done, you know, show's over. Puts him on his shoulders, walks 13 miles and drops him on a hill. You guys deal with it. Why? Because he embarrasses them. He embarrasses them. You're trying to hold me? You're trying to keep me? I'm not just going to take your gates, which is the strength of your city. Any city, the strength was in the gates. If your gates were weak, your city was weak. The strength of a city was in its gates. So he took the very strength in the very heart of the city, threw it on his shoulders, dropped it on a hill miles away. You guys deal with it. You gotta come get your ox and haul this thing back because no one's carrying it back. He was set apart by God. The potential he had, the power he had, he was set apart by God. But here's the thing with Samson. By the end of his life, we come to verse 16, verse 20, and just before the last instance of his life, we have this line about him. But he did not know that the Lord had left him. Potential and power, but right near the end of his life, the Lord left him. And if you had taken a camera and you zoomed right in on the very, just right near the end of his life, right before the last instance of his life, here's what you'd see. You'd see a beaten down man, probably just about naked, maybe some little clothes covering him. He's blind, he can't see because the Philistines have gouged out his eyes. And he's walking around a millstone like an animal chained to a millstone, going around in circles, grinding down grain for the Philistine army to eat. And this man that was set aside, set apart for God, now finds himself set aside. God's purposes, treading out grain, blind, can't see. I got to imagine, I can't, you know, what went through his mind thinking, how did I get here? But he was, had all this potential, and yet he abandoned it. Even in the very last act of his life, the very last act of his life, 
I'll talk about it more in a few minutes. But in that last act, he says this to God. He does cry out to God. He says, then Samson called out to the Lord and said, oh, Lord, please remember me and please strengthen me only this once. Oh, God, that I may be avenged on the Philistines for my two eyes. And in some ways, it's a good prayer. But in other ways, it goes back to what we talked about with Gideon last week. He's not asking for God's glory. He's not asking that God would be reverenced. He's asking for revenge. And I want revenge. I want revenge. Give me revenge. And at the end of his life, he was set apart for the purposes of God and yet set aside for God. He's not fulfilling his purposes. He's missing it. And this is our question. How does someone with so much potential, so much gifting, so much power, so much ability, I mean, as the spirit of God in his life, end up set aside at the end of his life? How does it end up that someone should have been a hero ends up a cautionary tale? Something that should have been a victory ends up a tragedy. How does it go there and how do we avoid going there? Two things, I think. Two things. How do you go from set apart to set aside? One is misguided passion. Samson should have been passionate about the Lord. Instead, he was passionate about women. In fact, three women throughout this story, we get his story of that he goes after. First one, when he was going down to that lion, you know where he was going? He was going to marry a Philistine woman. He was going to a party. He was going to a two-week-long celebration where he would get his bride from the Philistines. And his parents said, Samson, we really wish you wouldn't do that. His response was, I want her, get her for me. She is, and if you've been following along in Judges, you'll know the significance of this line. He says, she is right in my eyes. He said, get her for me. He goes after her, and when he does, he ends up in this situation where he's at this party where he's with the Philistines and actually ends up in the situation where he tries to trick them, they trick him. And he ends up storming out and leaving his bride there, actually. It's a mess, but it was misguided passion. It was misguided passion. The story about Gaza, when they had him inside the gates, you know why he was in Gaza? Wanted to go visit a prostitute. Went to go visit a Philistine prostitute in Gaza. Misguided passion. Gets him stuck in the city. The end of his life, when he ends up treading grain, he ends up with his eyes gouged out. It's because he fell in love with a woman named Delilah who did not fall in love with him. Another Philistine woman who had no interest necessarily in Samson but had a lot of interest in the money the Philistines would pay her if she would figure out and betray him the secret of his strength. Misguided passion leads to him missing the purposes of God in his life. Can happen in your life and my life too. Something you really want, but you know isn't God's plan for you. Well, God, I really want this person. God, I know they're not the person you chose for me. God, I know they're not heading in the same direction, but they, oh, they're so great, and I, I just really want to be with them, and I'm, I'm just going to pray that you're going to bless what I want to do instead of me doing what I know you'll bless. 
and we follow our misguided passion and we end up forsaking some of the purposes of God in our life. But it wasn't just misguided passion. It was willful presumption. Presuming that God would just continue to bless everything he chose to do, no matter what. Remember the Nazarite vow? Three things, right? Don't touch anything dead. No fermented drink. And don't cut your hair. Don't touch anything dead. Killed that lion. Ripped it in half. Powerful. God's strength. Wonderful. That was a live lion when he started. I don't think that violated the vow. But a little later, he walks down the same path. He's really hungry. Has this temptation. I don't know. Go, go. Let me go see this lion. See what I did to this lion. Goes by and sees this lion. And in the meantime, some bees had built a hive in there. And it was dripping with honey. And he goes and he reaches into the dead carcass of the lion and he pulls out honey and starts to eat it. And if you grew up all the days of your life being told, Samson, you've been set apart. Samson, this is God's purposes for your life. Samson, remember, you can't touch a dead body. You can't go, you can't do it. You know in that moment he knew exactly that he was doing something he should not do. Think of something your parents told you all your life to stay away from and you went and did it anyway. You heard that voice in the back of your head as soon as you did it. And you wondered, what's gonna happen? And he must have wondered, what's gonna happen? Is God gonna strike me down? Is lightning gonna come out? I'm really hungry though and I'm eating this and he's eating it. And nothing happens. It's fine. No lightning out of heaven. Huh. Maybe my parents got it wrong. Maybe it really wasn't an angel. Maybe sin isn't that serious. Goes to the party. It's a two-week-long party. It's literally called a drinking party, and Samson's paying for it. We're not told exactly he drank there, but we're told all the circumstances we need to know that it'd be very unlikely that he didn't drink there. But nothing happens to him. He goes on and fights. He's still strong. Here's the thing. He's still got the gifts of God. But we sometimes mix up having the gifts of God with having the fruit of God. We sometimes think just because someone has the gifts of the Spirit that they also have the fruit of the Spirit in their life. And here's Samson who has, God's still using him, he's still strong, but his life and his heart are far away. Presumes that God is still pleased with him. He's still strong, still doing his work. So then he meets Delilah. He meets Delilah and she says, please tell me the strength. What's the secret of your strength? And he tells her a lie. And she realizes it's a lie and she said, tell me the secret of your strength. Tells her a lie again. Third time, she says, come on, Samson. Please be honest with me. You loved me, tell me. But he tells her a lie again. Finally, chapter 16 said this. And she said, this is chapter 16, verse 15, how can you say I love you when your heart is not with me? You think the Bible is dated and doesn't have any relevance today? Young people need to listen. Someone's gonna come to you and say, how can you say you love me if you won't do this for me? And you may be tempted to walk away from something that is important and valuable to you in your faith. 
How can you say you lo- I love you when your heart is not with me? You have mocked me these three times, and you have not told me where your great strength lies. And when she pressed him hard with her words day after day and urged him, his soul was vexed to death. And he told her all his heart and said to her, a razor has never come upon my head, for I am a Nazarite to God from my mother's womb. If my head is shaved, then my strength will leave me and I shall become weak like any other man. I don't know what Samson was thinking in this moment. I mean, if he was just worn out, tired, like fine. Or I don't know if he thought, you know what? I did the other two. <laughs> Nothing happened. Even if she does it, even if they were to take my hair, seems like things will be fine. I don't know what his, I don't know what his thinking was. But he tells her. And then somehow he falls asleep on her lap and somehow in the night she gets someone to come in and shave his head. Makes me think he was probably drinking then because I don't know how you shave someone's head without them waking up. But she shaves his head. He's asleep, ties him up. And then in that moment, it says she tells him, you know, Samson, the Philistines are upon you. And in chapter 16, verse 20, it says, the Philistines are upon you, Samson. And here's one of the most significant verses in the book. And he awoke from his sleep and said, I will go out as at other times and shake myself free. But he did not know that the Lord had left him. Presuming upon the grace of God. Just do what I did at other times. Doesn't matter. No big deal. God's always been with me. He's always going to be with me. Presuming upon the grace of God. Some of you are wondering, thinking we forgot a vacuum up here. Presuming upon the grace of God in our lives. It's kind of like your vacuum. And you're going along. And you have to take care of a room and you take care of all you need to take care of. And at some point, your cord runs out. And I feel like that's a good picture of what just happened in Samson's life. I touched the dead body, drank just like other guys. God's not paying attention or sin's not that serious. My parents didn't know what they were talking about. I can dabble in this stuff. I can go down this road and not get hurt. I want it. I deserve it. I can handle it is how Craig Grishel puts it. That was Samson's attitude. I want it. I deserve it. And I can handle it. He was a really strong man with a really weak will. And he went and followed it, and eventually the cord came out. He didn't realize the spirit of the Lord had left him. And it happens in our lives too if we're not careful. You move from set apart to set aside through misguided passion, misdirected passion, and willful presumption. And be careful about that in your life. Be careful about that. That's what the story is. This story goes from the nation to an individual and showing us how it plays out in an individual's life. Samson did what was right in his own eyes. 
did not do what was right in the Lord's eyes. And it cost him. A couple weeks ago, I was dry hunting from here, from the church to my uh, sister's house in Bill Rickham. And I thought, well, it's an easy drive. I know exactly where I'm coming. I mean, I grew up in Bill Rickham. I've been here for years and really no big deal. So I start driving. And I go, my kids are in the car, and I know how to get there, and I get stuck in the worst traffic that I have seen in this section of Bill Ricca. I mean, like bad, like you know the traffic, like you're sitting and you can see the light, and it changes to green, and nobody moves. And it changes back to red, and it changes back to green, and nobody moves. And you see the traffic on the perpendicular street moving and going so that you know what's happening up there. They're blocking the box, so when your light changes, you can't get out. And my daughter says to me, Daddy, why don't you have ways on? And I just stand there staring like this. Because certainly if I had turned on ways, it would have routed me around. And I always turn on ways. I turn on ways so much that one day my daughter got in the car and I was driving someplace without it. And she said, how do you know where you're going? <laughs> and I had to say, believe it or not, people used to get around like this. We used to drive without a little screen in front of us. But the reality is, if I had turned it on, it would have routed me. And I eventually said, yeah, I should have, said, I should have turned it on, whatever. It would have routed me around this. It cost me time. I guess it cost me some money and gas. It certainly cost me a little bit of my attitude and frustration. Because I went the way that seemed right in my own eyes. But if I had just asked for some help, it would have saved me. And you'll be tempted to go away that seems right in your own eyes. And young people, you'll be tempted. Say, oh, Dad, you don't know what you're talking about. Oh, Mom, you don't know. Times have changed. Things are different. I, you know, this, this, that's not even true anymore. This is the way that looks right in my eyes. And you'll be tempted to go the way that seems right in your own eyes. And it may not cost you your entire purpose that God has for you in life. Because to be fair, Samson actually did in the end fulfill God's purpose. He ended up defeating the Philistine false god temple and killing uh, a lot of the Philistines, God's enemies, but at the cost of his own life and sacrificing his reputation. He was a strong man, but he was not a great man. You may not throw out the whole purpose of your life, but you have a good chance of missing a lot of God's purpose for your life when you start to go the way that looks right in your eyes and not the way that God would have you to walk. God has a ministry for you. He has a purpose for you, a place for you. And no one can take it away from you, but you can give it away if you're not careful. Serve in a ministry, and when you started out, Maybe you took it real seriously. Maybe it's just teaching a, you're teaching a class of kids or maybe you're teaching a Bible study or leading a small group and you remember the first time you did it. <sighs> I'm real nervous. And you went and talked to some people. Oh, they pray for me. 
pray for us, pray for our class. I'm, I'm reading all the books. I got all the things copied. I don't know. They're going to ask a question. I don't know. I'm afraid they're going to ask something that I don't understand. And you're stepping out in faith and you prepare and you go and God blesses it and it's good. But then you do it next year and you do it again and again and again. And all of a sudden you're like, you know what? I got this. Done this so many times and so often, and you don't ask anyone to pray. In fact, you feel silly asking people to pray because you feel so comfortable with it. You don't pray yourself, you don't prepare, you just go in, you're like, Look, I'm older than these people, I'm smarter than these people, I've heard every question, they're not going to ask anything I haven't heard, and you start operating in your strength. And then you find yourself not just not praying about a class, but you're not praying at all in your life. You're not walking with God at all in your life. I come to realize, I think more and more, the more I am in the church and the more I'm in Christianity, that too often we mistake what we think is spiritual maturity for what is actually behavior modification. That we look at someone on the outside and we look at their gifting and we look at what they're doing for, for the Lord and we think, oh, they must be walking close to God and they must be so close to God when all they've really done is managed to control their outward behavior enough that people look at them and think they're spiritually mature. And you can have the gifting of God and the gifting of the Spirit without having the fruit of the Spirit and be careful because you'll end up missing the purposes of God in your life. Samson is a cautionary tale. Watch out that you don't have misdirected passion and willful presumption upon God's grace that leads you away from God's purposes. Here's the final thing I'll say. There is a great measure of grace in this story that we must not miss. One of the best lines in all of Judges and maybe one of my favorite lines in all of the Old Testament is when Samson is standing there and he's got his hand on one post of this temple and his other hand on the other post of that temple. And he's asking God for revenge, but he's asking God, just give him strength one more time. He's going to push these foundational posts down, collapse it on him and all the Philistines and their false God and their temple. And the scripture says, and his hair began to grow back. Scripture says, and his hair began to grow again. And when you hear that verse, hear this word, grace. Grace. Because you may have walked away and you may have gone down a road that took you away from the purposes of God in your life. But Samson's hair began to grow again. God's grace is available for you if you will turn back to him. God's grace is available for you to course correct, for you to get rerouted back onto the path that he wants you on. His hair began to grow again. And then remember this. There's something missing. We've been talking about this cycle, if you've been with us in Judges, right? Disobedience, discipline, distress, deliver a descent. Here's, Samson's basically gonna be the last judge we're gonna look at. He's really the last one of the, I mean, everything deteriorates from here. It gets really dark from here on. 
Um, we're going to get into it. We're going to have, I think, a week or two to get into the rest. Next week is Youth Sunday. Our students are going to be ministering, so come and hear them. You're going to love that. They're going to be awesome. But this is really the last of the judges, Samson. He was supposed to be the best. We had the birth narrative. Yeah, the po- he was supposed to be the best. But here's what's interesting about the cycle in this part of, Sam- in this part of Judges. The people never call out in distress. They never call out in distress. In fact, there's one line in chapter 15 where uh, they say to Samson just before they're handing him over, don't you know the Philistines rule over us? They've given up. Philistines rule over us. They gave up. But here's the grace. They never called out in distress, but God sent a deliverer anyways. God sent a deliverer anyways. And I can't help but think that this ultimately points to Christ, who also had a birth narrative about him, who also came and is the ultimate deliverer and also conquered and completed God's purposes through his death. And you didn't ask for it because the Bible says, while we were yet sinners living as enemies of God, Christ died for you. You and I didn't even know enough to cry out in distress. And God sent a deliverer for you and for me. Let's pray. If you just take a moment, bow your heads, close your eyes, and just take this sacred space for time with God, you and your creator, you and your God. And if you're in here today, I think there's probably two groups of people at least when we come to a message that need to respond here. One is you have walked off the course that God has called you to, and you know it. I don't have to point it out. You know it. You know you've been walking a course that's right in your own eyes, but contrary to what God and others in your life who love God and know God have taught you, and you need a course correct today. You need to just say, Lord, I need your grace. I need to hang on to that verse that says his hair began to grow back. I need to know that I can come back, and I need to turn back to you today, and I need to turn away from my presumption. I need to turn away from my misdirected passion and just turn back to you. And if that's where you are today, I'm not going to ask you to do anything. I want to pray for you. I just want to pray for every person that that's the case, that that's true. I just ask you, just lift your hand to God and say, God, that's me today. Just let him know. Just say, God, it's me. I have gotten off course and I need to get back to you today. Thank you. Thank you. And just lift your hands. They don't lift it necessarily to me. You're saying to God, God, that's me. He's talking to me. Thank you. I have gotten off my course. I need to get back to you. Thank you. I need to get back on my track. I want your purposes. Thank you. I don't want to miss your purposes for my life. Thank you. I don't want to miss it, Lord. I want your purposes for my life. God, I need your grace. I need your forgiveness today. And secondly, if you're here today and you might say, you know what? That last part that you talked about, that deliverer that I didn't ask for, but I know I need. And if it's true that Jesus came and he died for me, then I want that. I want that forgiveness that he offers. I want, I want him to be, just lead my life because I really have been messing it up trying to lead myself. And I want to put my hope and my trust in him. I want to put my faith and I want to give my life over to him that he might be my deliverer. I want, to, I want to follow everything he says. And if that's you and you're here today, I want to just ask you to do the same thing. Just lift your hand and say, that's me. Just pray for me. That's me right now. I want to give my life to God. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. God, that's me. Thank you. Thank you. 
God, that's me. I want to give my life over to you. I want to put my life in your hands. And if you, if that's you with your hand raised, Jesus has not made it difficult. In fact, he's done all the hard work. He's already fought the battle. He's already conquered death in the grave. All you have to do is turn to him in faith and say, Lord, I want you to be my Lord. I want to put my faith and my trust in you. I ask your forgiveness. That's your forgiveness of the way I have been living. And I want to turn to your way of living. I want to put my full faith and trust in you. And I want from this point on for you to lead my life fully. I want you to be Lord of every aspect of my life. And I want to follow you. And when you do that, the Bible says that the Holy Spirit, God's Holy Spirit actually comes and takes up residence in you, lives within you. Bible says, God says, draw near to me and I will draw near to you. And you take that step, God, the Father, the Holy, the Holy One of Heaven draws close to you as you've invited Him to do that. Lord, I pray for these who have lifted their hands. I pray for my friends who have all lifted their hands and said, I, I want to come back. I've lost my purpose. I've lost my path. There's times where I have just diverged and I have gone the wrong way and I've done what's right in my own eyes and now I want to do what's right in God's eyes. Pray for my friends that have lifted their hands, that you bless them, guide them, and lead them. And Lord, just extend grace and cover the places in their lives where they have departed from you and lead them from this day forward to fully walk in your ways in the ministry you've given them. And Lord, I pray for my friends today who lifted their hand and said, I want to put my faith and trust in Jesus today. I want to follow Jesus all the days of my life. I've tried running my life myself and it's not working and I want to confess that I need Jesus, confess my sins and ask him to forgive me and that I would walk with him. Pray that you would, Lord, do what you said you would do by your Holy Spirit in this instant. Change them, come into them, reveal yourself to them and remove and relieve the burden that they've been carrying even now, Lord. And speak to them and lead them by your spirit. Lord, ultimately, it is the word grace that I pray that we hear from this word. Grace, because we all fall short. None of us have lived out the potential and the power that we were given at the beginning of our life from you. We've all missed so, Lord, help us to understand greater that you are the hero of every story. Every story we've been looking at in Judges, you are the hero. And every story that's sitting in these chairs today, you're ultimately the hero. And, Lord, we lift you up in Jesus' name. Amen.